This is the Coast and Country download from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today you can hear Open Country. I'll tell you what we'll do. If, if you push the trailer, okay. walk it into the water, and then when it's sort of getting near the top of your wellies, we'll lift and carry it, and then can you pull the trailer back up onto the I would, I would be very sand. pleased to do that, no problem. So I'm pushing now, yeah? Good, okay. Okay. Theo Wilson, you're staying on the beach here with me to just have, explain yeah. what, what's going on. Yeah, so this is just a basic man overboard procedure. What you can see now is um, that if uh, and the man goes overboard like that, the skipper shouts to his crew, man overboard. He then drives away from the uh, what now is a casualty and he circles back around. If you can look at the crew member at the bow of the boat, she's uh, sitting up quite high, pointing at the man in the water. And then when they get closer, she counts down from five meters till there's contact. And what the skipper does is he shuts off the engine so the, so the casualty doesn't drift into the propeller and there's you know, not more of an injury. And you know, they pull him back into the boat and he's absolutely fine. One of the amazing things about what I'm watching here, this inshore lifeboat practice on the Bristol Channel, is not just the skill and dexterity of the volunteer crew out there who are doing manoeuvres at the moment. It's their age. They're 17 and 18 years old. And they're students at the school behind me. And if I turn my back on the sea, which is always a dangerous thing to do and look up, it's a 12th century castle that they go to school in. And there is an RNLI lifeboat station that is a part of this school. And the crew members here are qualified RNLI volunteers. And it sums up really what this school is all about. It's called Atlantic College. It's celebrating its 50th anniversary and Open Country is here really to look at how it uses the landscape to support its ethos, which is about service. It's about trying to encourage and support global reconciliation and students from all over the world come here to study. Now they're uh, right by the trailer to manage to help you help them. Two, six... So we're tying the boat to the trailer. So, uh, there we go. The crew's going to get changed. They're getting out of their wet kit. I'm catching my breath. Theo, uh, you're still with me, maybe. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm fine, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I catch my breath. You can tell me what's going on now. What, what are the crew doing now? What we do is we take all the kit that we had on the boat off the boat. We wash it down with fresh water to get all the salt off. We'll have a debrief so the crew, you know, explain you know, what went well in the session, what went wrong, what we can improve on, things like that. Just talk me through the, the structure of the boat here because it's what about it's about six feet in length. Yep. It has like an inflatable side that runs from the back of the boat all the way around the front of the boat and all the way to the other side of the back. And then if you look underneath, it's got a very hard fiberglass shell right here. So what that does is when it's going over a big wave, you know, the bottom of the boat's going to take a lot of the impact and, you know, the fibreglass is a lot stronger. One of the things that struck me as I watched the crew out there was just how unstable you are on the sea in a boat like this. They're bouncing oh, up yeah. and down. Oh, yeah. 
It must be difficult not to fall out. I mean, what, is. what is there in this boat that helps people actually stay in it when they're out on a, on a rescue? Yeah, inside the boat, you know, we have black handles. They're actually attached to the, uh, to the inflatable, inflatable side. And then uh, there are um, kind of loops that are bolted down to the floor. There are meant to be, you know, two people on board. So you have the, you know, the skipper, the helmsman, and then you have the, uh, the, the crew member as well. And they slip their, their feet through these uh, loops. And you know, if you go over a big wave, you know, your feet's kind of attached to the floor and you know, you're not going to go anywhere. So you might bounce up and down, but exactly. you're not, you're you're not, not exiting the boat. No, exactly. Yeah. Well, ideally not. <laughs> Charlotte, maybe I could interrupt uh, what you're doing here. And you're still in all your gear. You've still got your life jacket on. You've yeah. got your helmet on and everything. Watching you out there, it, it struck me how much skill and confidence you had out there manoeuvring. What does it feel like when you're actually out there? Well, it's really an awesome feeling. We need a lot of skills to be able to drive in this kind of weather with loads of waves and wind. We have to always look out for the conditions. Where are we drifting? How do we put the boats? Because these are really light, as you said, and they also can flip over. And even when I'm not driving, I have to pay attention and I fully have to trust the person who is driving because... Well, we really depend on each other. What about your very first rescue? How did you feel when you got your first proper call-out? We were just saving another boat from, like, our crew because the engine had, um, like, died. So it was a really good feeling because we practiced it a lot. We come down here at least, like, twice a week. It was, like, a really good feeling to see that it's actually working, that we can apply what we have learned. Where are you from? I'm from Germany. And I noticed today, at least, you're the only woman here. I mean, is that ever a problem? What does that feel like? Um, we have a great variety. We have girls and boys. We ha- we're from all nationalities, like, really. We have from every continent at least one person. Sometimes we even communicate in different languages. When you see you're in a, on a boat and there's tension and you have to react really quickly, sometimes you hear people switching from English to German to French. And that's, I think, really unique about this place. It's, it's amazing that you can do that and think about everything else you yeah. need to be doing when you're in that boat. Well, Mike and Isaac, you're two other of the crew members we've been see, watching out there on, on the boats. Uh, tell me where you're from, first of all. We're both uh, Americans. You're both I'm, Americans. I'm from Boston. I'm from a small town near Seattle. Now, America doesn't have the tradition of volunteering for uh, inshore rescue yeah. and sea rescue in the way that we do here in the UK. What made you want to, to volunteer for this particular part of college life? Well, it's, it's a very different responsibility than I think any you know, 18-year-old could, could really have. Um, in the States, we really don't have it because the Coast Guard is very well funded and, uh, and they take care of things like that. But it's one of the things which actually drew me to the college and one of the, the main things that brought me here. Right, so you wanted to come here partly because you knew that you'd be able to do this. Yes, yes. Yeah. There, there was that prospect. I Absolutely the same reasons. The town I'm from is you know, very boat-focused. I've been sailing all my life. I've been driving boats all my life. And so I found out about this, you know, and it was both a natural fit and absolutely drew me to the college. And I'm now actually involved in an outfit, you know, a, a small outfit, you know, like a single RNLI station back home doing pretty much exactly the same stuff. Oh, right. So this idea is starting to get exported so. to, the, to the US. Then, yeah, oh, a friend of the family is, you know, it's got a boat. They'll take calls from the Coast Guard, go out and pull, you know, pull people out of the water. Right, so your skills are invaluable when Ex- you go home from Ex- what you've learned here. Yeah, it's been amazing, you know, teaching friends of mine back home the skills I learned here and then they're, they're putting it to use throughout the year. At the end of a session, just kind of a, like get the groups together and you finish it off hard, finish off strong. You ready? Uh- uh-
John Wormsley, your principal here at Atlantic mm, College. Yes. Tell me a little bit about the founding of the college 50 years ago. In fact, the, the college was founded in the week of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and it was set up to bring bright young, young people from all corners of the globe, really, to bring them here together, and then when they were here, to challenge them physically and academically uh, in the sea and in, in the mountains, on, on the site here, so that there would be a real sort of development of understanding of difference and of similarity in a sort of post-war period when... There was, there was a lot of concern of how we can bring people together through education. And what about Kurt Hahn himself and his background? He was an educationalist in Germany, set up a, set up a Salem school in Germany. And uh, before the Second World War, he saw what was going on in, in Nazi Germany. He spoke out and got himself into difficulties because of that. And he was advised to, to leave, but he wanted to carry on with his ideas here. He founded Gordonston, he founded Atlantic College, he founded the Outward Bound Movement and the, and the Duke of Edinburgh's award scheme, really, which gave him contact with some quite influential people, which enabled the college to be set up because he, he got people like the Duke of Edinburgh behind it and, and Mountbatten. It's an ambitious goal, isn't it, to say we're going to bring people together from all over the world, from lots of different cultures. They will develop, therefore, a greater understanding of how other people in the world live and and think, and that will make the world more tolerant. And and we believe that that's a step towards, I don't know, reconciliation, global peace. To what extent do you think the college has managed to realise that over the last half a century? I think it's done it pretty well, actually. I mean, particularly in today's world, we have bedrooms of four students and we put four different nationalities in a room. If there's a conflict, two students from different sides of a conflict, we put them in the same room. So we'll put a Palestinian with an Israeli, for example, and they really have to uh, learn to live together. So when they live together at this level, they start to realise that actually they're quite similar, and they can perhaps live together in a wider, more global level. They do the International Baccalaureate, which was actually started here, really, and that, that is an international education system to bring people together. But we didn't think it did quite enough. So we do a lot of work on top of the academic, particularly in areas of social justice, global issues, environmental issues, and, and also the outdoor side. So the students spend about 400 hours over the two years on what we call co-curricular issues. So they might, they might organise a social justice conference or a peace conference. And they really do learn about what's going on in the world and, and, and how individuals can make a difference. And how do they cope when they come here? Because the the students that I've met today have seemed extraordinarily self-possessed, emotionally mature, capable, confident people. But some of them at 16 years old will have travelled halfway around the world on their own to come to a place full of strangers in a, in, a, in a very strange country with a climate very unlike theirs and in, a, in, a, in an environment that even a lot of people in the UK would think was odd. You know, they're in a 12th yeah. century castle in a, mm. in a farm in woodlands by the Bristol Channel. I mean, do they all cope with it? They mostly do, and, and, and even if they don't to begin with, they do pretty, pretty soon. It's a very welcoming, friendly place. Uh, but also they know they're coming to a place where they can't just sit back or, or just read their textbooks. They have to get involved. And they tend to be pretty involved people anyway. Who uh, They want to develop the tools and the skills to actually be able to go and work to change things. So, as if it's not enough to have the Bristol Channel right there, uh, you also have an open-air swimming pool here, which is just behind, I suppose, what you'd call the... the, the battlements of the castle really that look out onto the onto the Bristol Channel and the way that the wind is causing the surface of this pool to ripple <laughs> is making me cold just to look at it. I'm pretty and sure the channel's warmer. <laughs> I bet the channel is warmer. There's an activity, an initiative on oh. campus called the Kurt Hahn Experiential Corps and we, on, on Wednesday and Thursday mornings we'll either go running or swimming, try to do something physical in the morning for exercise and then we try to finish off the session by 
getting everyone to do at the very least a length in the outdoor pool. I've just dipped my fingers in there. It's freezing. <laughs> I bet it takes your breath away when you first jump in, doesn't just it? Just a bit. Yeah. A <laughs> uh, load of rumour, actually. I don't know if you can tell me whether this is true, but JFK learned to swim in this pool. Is there anything in that? I have heard that as well. I believe I've so, I've been yeah. investigating it, and I think it's true. One of the other notable things about the environment here, aside from the castle, is that it is surrounded by woodland, isn't it? You yes. go out into the woodland as well and, and do things there. What sort of things do you do? Uh, we might utilise it for things like shelter building. It's just sticks, logs, uh, different types of foliage. And we're planning to sleep in them. Hopefully by the time term gets out, would be, which would be December. Are they going to be cosy, do you think? Absolutely. Ah, well, if they're small if, enough, they'll yeah. be very cosy. But nice and small, well insulated, fire going right next to it. We should be warmer than we are in our rooms. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there we go. That just proves their enthusiasm. They are willing to jump in the pool on a very cold day in November. Well, stay away from me, guys, because I'm not following you in there, I promise. Dave Booker, you're vice principal yes. here at Atlantic College, and um, we're, we're standing now on a very exposed part of just outside the, the castle wall, really, overlooking the, the Bristol Channel. And uh, the sun's just poking through, actually, at the very far horizon. And there's a beautiful silver strip there on the far side uh, that uh, well, looks like, looks like a mirror, doesn't it? Just it reflecting does. back up at the sky. But That's Minehead. So we can, we can see it right as yeah, far as Minehead right. from here today. Gosh. Yeah. And actually, and, and, and part of the uh, adventure and challenge of Atlantic College, last term, our uh, head of maths faculty... Uh, kayaked across there with students, slept overnight on the beach and kayaked back next day. So they right across the Bristol Channel to Minehead? Yeah, yeah incredible. It, it's not an easy sea, this, is it? The Bristol no, Channel no. Pr- presents its own challenges and, and that's why the Atlantic rib vessel, which is now used pretty much everywhere in the world, ended up being invented here at Atlantic College. What can you tell me about that? Well, that's absolutely right. It's the particular conditions of this stretch of the coast that led to the development of the rib. As you can see, the, the sea is very rough. The uh, landing conditions in those days, without the slipway, was just simply the rocks and the trolley. And the tidal range here is extreme. And that requires a craft that is stable under those treacherous conditions, a craft where the power is transferred easily from the engines to the craft itself, so you need a stable hull, but also you need something which is light and manoeuvrable. And so those particular conditions here led to the development of what we have at the moment, which is the rigid inflatable. So how did the, the students and the principal at the time go about designing something that, that would be more suitable? I, I think in the early days there was an awful lot of, uh, of trial and error. It was trying out designs that were already current, adding them to new ideas that were being developed here. And, and, and that has been picked up and used widely right around the world, that design, hasn't it? Uh, absolutely. It's, it's been used also by our students, in fact, during the Mozambique uh, floods a couple of years ago because it can gain access to key areas uh, which are a shallow draft. For instance, it's very easy for any uh, uh, beach landings that we might do up the coast. Now, on the modern ones, of course, we can actually tip back the engines so that the propeller isn't damaged. And I was reading that it's the most widely used inshore rescue vessel in the world now. It is, it is. And it was designed here by students and the first headmaster, Desmond Hall, yes. Did you patent it? Did no. You, did you make any money out of it at all? For the a college? pound. The RNLI wrote us a cheque for a pound, which I believe was never cashed. <laughs> There's 
alley was originally the kitchen garden for the castle, and over the years it hasn't been taken care of very well, so now we're re revamping it and making it into a better place to supply some Currently, we are trying to establish eight projects like raised beds, uh, beekeeping, greenhouse, polytunnels, etc. The point is to make students to take the initiatives to like to grow the stuff really for their own schools, but not like given uh, accepting orders by teachers. Like we are doing our stuff, we are self-motivating, try to be that. So the polytunnel was erected by students last year and it was a monumental effort to put up all of the <laughs> metal posts and then cover the entire thing in plastic. And what the polytunnel does is it keeps all of the plants really warm so that we can have a really extended growing season. And if you see in here, we have spinach in the front, lots of different kinds of lettuce, and more recently planted sprouts for lettuce over there, as well as some squash in the background. Are you going to eat these? Are you going to... I think gonna right now we're these? planning to take them out to the kitchen and they're considering serving like a squash curry or pumpkin pie. Even. Fantastic. Hannah, you've been bringing me down here and, and explaining what's been going on. Winston, you've uh, also been working on this, and Avenisa, you yeah. have as well. Yeah. Tell yeah. me a little bit about the stuff that, that you've been doing. I'm leading the raised bed uh, part, so planning what to plant and uh, putting some compost and like preparing the whole area. So, is there anything you can get me to do while we're here? Because I'd love to pitch in and help. Absolutely. Well, the reason that this whole place smells so earthy and <laughs> fertile is because we put lots of time and care into it, and nobody's watered. So, ah, if okay. you guys, yeah, would like no to problem. Come over here. Yeah, I will be careful. Abanese is worried. I'm going to soak him. <laughs> you might want to hold it close to the end. So, it's okay. So I'm just, I'm doing all these beds, yeah? Yeah. Okay, you have to get your finger on it so you don't hurt yeah. the seed. Okay, right. Like, like that? Yeah. Like, yeah. Press like it this. harder. Like this? Yeah, yeah there you go. That's yeah. it. Basically, we have about 45 members, and every member, uh, every one of us has to do twice uh, per week, um, leading the environmental monitoring and awareness uh, activity. Basically, we have some biodiversity area. We, are, we have been able to bring some uh, species which have never been in, in the campus. So, What sort of species are you uh, bringing in? Basically, we focus on insects, and we have beekeeping activity, uh, it was interesting to have like this modern uh, hive and uh, back home we had traditional hive which is different from we don't care about the bees and they come during uh, like in September and after the uh, six months they leave the hive and we need to find new bees but here we have to like protect them we have to provide them food like uh, flowers and stuff so that was amazing and how do you get on with the bees are they relatively kind to you they're kind yeah. they're they kind <laughs> <laughs> we had this wild type of bees back home so they're really kind for me <laughs> <laughs> so it's a doddle for you then yeah. with, with these british bees well up to this point i've been talking about the castle i've seen the castle from various different angles but now i'm walking up to the main entrance to this 12th century castle that has been inhabited continuously actually for the, the whole 700 years of its life and other than Harry Potter I don't know what kind of student would go to a school like this it is extraordinary really and I'm walking now across a dry moat and I'm about to walk under a portcullis and into the college what a daily walk this must be to go to lessons it's just unbelievable it takes your breath away 
Nice to meet you. Nice Aline. to meet you. And uh, I'm Simiha. From Bangladesh, is that right? Yeah. Right. And Aline, you're from I'm Canada. I'm from Canada, but I was born in the States. Are you going to give me a little tour? And, yeah, uh, pick yeah. Pick out some of the... Of course. And just to explain, we're standing in a, a courtyard, I suppose. Yeah. It, we, in or is a it almost courtyard. like a college quad or something, like yeah. a, a, an Oxbridge mm-hmm. quad? The United Royal Colleges, which is abbreviated as UWC, it's a movement of... Um, 13 colleges that are present now in the world today. This was the first pioneering one. Our mission statement, which is to make education a force to unite people's nations and cultures, that is literally what the school is. If you walk along here, okay. we go on lead to, the way. You walk into the dining hall. Um, this was also originally there, but lots of additions were made to it. But a lot oh. of the addition was made by. Um, another oh, owner yeah. called William Randolph Hearst. Yeah. Ah, now Randolph Hearst, Randolph the man Hearst. they made Citizen Kane about. Yeah. The, new, yeah. the American newspaper yeah. magnet. He basically saw this in a magazine and decided to take ownership. And what he did is he poured money into this place and built and added so many different parts of the castle. He put whatever picture has like stereotypical features that he would think that you would assume that a castle has and built them into a school like this right so and we can't so assume that, that what we see isn't what a relatively recent <coughs> addition then because what he bought it in 1920s, what, 1920s? Mm-hmm. late right. 1920s lots of additions were made relatively recently but most of the original structures yeah. were built in the 15th to 16th okay. century exactly well he had the money i suppose didn't yeah. he? go on lead the so, way then this is good for the main dining hall. This is probably the most commonly used area on campus because you come to meals here. Sure. You see the original screen, um, which was taken from a church in Devon. All the parts of the dining hall were taken from different places and, and synthesized into one room. Right. So the roof of the dining hall was taken from uh, the Boston Church in Lincolnshire. Now, Aline, that roof is a, what is that? Knotted oak. That is amazingly yeah. ornate, it's, isn't it? It's an actually it's Flemish roof. Which really? Was, yeah. It was imported from Lincolnshire over here yeah. at the Boston Church. And then also, if you notice, the fireplace is an original and it was taken from a church in the south of France. Extraordinary. And I'm looking at students sitting in hoodies and jeans mm-hmm. in from 2012 over from over 90 different countries eating fish and chips. It's, it's, just, it's just the bizarrest sight. So just explain to me, Randolph Hearst had it for a long time. How did it end up coming into the hands of Atlanta College? Well, Randolph Hearst actually had it for a period of five years, from 1925 till 1930. This was a period when, since he bought it for his mistress, actually, Marion Davies, they used to hold lavish parties here. There were lots of famous visitors like Charlie Chaplin, the young JFK, Winston Churchill, David Lloyd George. He got into a lot of financial difficulty um, by the end of his career, which was in 1930, which is when he put it up for sale again. It was used then uh, for the U.S. and British the troops. War. Yeah. But afterwards... In 1962, Kurt Hahn, our former headmaster, Desmond Hoare, and Antman Best, they bought the castle, and that's what started the UWC movement. That is why this is the mother school. And, and originally actually started as an all-boys school, and then in 1968, uh, women were allowed to come here. And also, it, there's a link between the political situation of the time and the school and the students that come. So, for instance, in 1973, Chinese students were allowed to come for the first time, and we're still waiting for other countries who are, have oppressive governments, for instance, North Korea. This is the first year we've had a Burmese student come to the school. But n- today, Atlanta College has 94 nationalities that are represented, which is still an astounding number. And we're back outside, looking at the Sorry. Bristol Channel once again, with the castle at our backs, and... A smidgen of blue sky breaking through the cloud, actually, although the sea isn't really reflecting that. It's really changed colour uh, since we were here earlier in the day, and it's, it's, just, it's turned into a, a dull grey. It was kind of green and, and glassy earlier. 
As we look out here, standing on the terrace garden and the, the terraces fall below us down to the sea, what will this part of Wales mean to you as you go forward in the rest of your life? Landsport Major and St. Donald's Castle will always be like a second home to me. It's kind of isolated, so you become such a good and close-knit community that once you become part of the AC family, you never leave. And it's, it's little things like walking between codes and stopping at this top lawn and looking down at the, at the sea and just taking everything in. And that's one of the things I know I'll never forget for the rest of my life. And what about you, Samir? It's just so different from where I used to live. It makes me feel like this little beautiful corner of Wales has a little globe in itself because we're all from different parts of the world. It is absolutely amazing that a place like this by the sea in a castle is somewhere we can actually call home for not just two years, for life after here.